American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. What I'm going to do in the time that I have is to uh, try to provide uh, folks with uh, something of the you know, social, political, legal, historical context of the issues that we're going to be discussing uh, tonight, affirmative action. Because as I'm sure you all know, uh, the rules that we follow here uh, at CUNY uh, aren't simply rules that we make up. They are rules that are sort of imposed from uh, outside of the university, primarily in federal court decisions, as Cecilia alluded to, statutes, executive orders, other kinds of uh, uh, regulations. And uh, in order to prevent getting too unwieldy with my presentation, I kind of want you to think of, of it as sort of surrounding uh, two particular themes. Uh, one is uh, the distinctions between, let's say, an anti-discrimination principle, where we don't discriminate on the basis of protected categories, and an affirmative action principle, where you're essentially going far beyond simply uh, not discriminating. I want to try to keep that theme foremost in mind. Secondly, uh, I want to try to focus on uh, the differences between uh, what we talk about as uh, voluntary affirmative action, meaning affirmative action that is essentially the product of political struggles, uh, primarily from below, uh, where governmental officials or institutional officials make decisions without being pushed by courts. In other words, the decisions are being made outside of the context of litigation. Uh, this uh, distinction is one which I think is very, very important to, to, to keep in mind because my sense is that uh, if uh, the only affirmative action we can get is a result of litigation, it's not going to be very much of it. Uh, so the, the idea of trying to get institutions and employers to uh, adopt affirmative action plans on a voluntary basis, I think, uh, works, seems to be the route of uh, most likely success. Uh, but let's kind of go back to the uh, you know, very beginnings. I think if you sort of try to get some historical sense of this idea of affirmative action, kind of go back, you know, go back to the Civil War, go back to the Reconstruction era, perhaps the first plan to uh, come up with any sort of economic um, benefits for um, African Americans as formerly former slaves uh, was, you know, the uh, Freedmen's Bureau, you know, back in the 1860s. You know, surprisingly, uh, even at that time, even at that time in Congress, there was tremendous opposition to setting up any kind of economic program uh, for the former slaves. I actually have a quote here from the uh, House Minority Report on the uh, Freedmen's Bureau legislation, uh, where the uh, report speaking on behalf of those in opposition to the Bureau uh, said the following. This is, uh, this is a, qu a quote. Um, a proposition to establish a Bureau of Irishmen's Affairs, a Bureau of Dutchmen's Affairs, or those of Caucasian descent generally would be looked on as a vagary of a diseased brain and why the freemen of African descent should be the, become the marked objects of special legislation to the detriment of unfortunate whites your committee fails to comprehend. So even going back to the period immediately after the Civil War when the Reconstruction Congress, the Radical Reconstruction Congress was trying to put in place uh, some means for the former slaves to advance, you had this kind of unwillingness to recognize that there were, in fact, differences between what African Americans had suffered in this country compared to the Irish, the Dutch, uh, or others of Caucasian uh, descent. So the opposition was from the very, very beginning. In fact, Andrew Johnson actually vetoed uh, the legislation putting forward the uh, Freedmen's Bureau, but uh, the Reconstruction Congress essentially overturned the veto, put the plan in place, but the plan had no teeth to it. 
You know, such a, a very, very small percentage of southern land was in fact carved out for purposes of going to uh, former slaves. And then when Johnson essentially pardoned uh, the uh, southern Confederates, uh, that land essentially was taken out of circulation uh, for that purpose. So the, the, the plan never actually uh, got off the ground. We know that the economic aspects of Reconstruction was just a, a part of the, pa the package because there was a whole host of civil provisions that were designed to essentially take African Americans uh, and put them to this in the same uh, plane as, um, uh, as whites. The, the, the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th, there was a whole series of legislation, both civil and criminal, designed to obtain that uh, purpose. And again, as Cecilia said, uh, by 1890, almost all of that legislation had, in essence, been gutted. I want to quote to you uh, a phrase from uh, a very famous Supreme Court decision, which has, in fact, never been overruled, uh, the civil rights cases. Uh, in that uh, decision, uh, we have some of the same thought processes that we saw uh, in the Minority House Report when the Freedmen's Bureau legislation was up. Uh, this is the Supreme Court speaking in 1883. When a man has emerged from slavery and by the aid of beneficent legislation has shaken off the inseparable concomitants of that state, there must be some stage in the progress of his elevation when he takes the rank of a mere citizen and ceases to be the special favorite of the laws. And when his rights as a citizen or a man are to be protected in the ordinary modes by which other men's rights are protected. So 1883, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States was already in the process of gutting so much of the work that the Radical Reconstruction Congress had essentially put forward. And reality, uh, speaking realistically, it took almost 100 years uh, to get over the damage that was done uh, during that time period. Uh, if, we, if we look again for progress on, uh, towards uh, affirmative action and um, uh, redressing historic grievances of uh, the African-American population, we have to look to the 60s, the late 50s and the 1960s with some of the political struggles taking place, in particular uh, uh, in Philadelphia, you know, Reverend Sullivan was essentially running campaigns to get African-Americans in the unions. Uh, this was part of a much bigger effort involving political activists, uh, both white and African-American. Uh, that struggle essentially took off, uh, along with other benefits of the civil rights era. We had a series of executive orders coming from uh, Presidents Kennedy and Presidents Johnson, essentially incorporating, yes, uh, anti-discrimination principles, but also affirmative action principles, where in fact goals, timetables are kind of set up to essentially provide uh, forms of relief in a context where there has not been litigation in a context where there has not been litigation. So this is all what I talk of as voluntary affirmative action in the sense that it's coming from uh, people's struggles resulting in various types of executive proclamations, but there has not been court involvement. There has not been litigation, essentially. Now, with the passage of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, we have Congress essentially enacting legislation which incorporates the principle of anti-discrimination. As we know, it set up particular categories of the population and protected them from uh, various types of employment discrimination. In the very beginning, it didn't catch all the employers, but as time went on, gradually more and more employers were caught uh, within that uh, anti-discrimination principle. But what happened as a result is that you um, have the courts getting very, very much involved in anti-discrimination, and in uh, affirmative action, because when you think back about it, when a court essentially is ordering a remedy for discrimination after a judicial finding of some sort of wrongful conduct, the court is empowered to, in essence, impose affirmative action as a particular remedy. 
But to get to that remedy, we have to go through the litigation. And in the process, what the courts have done is they've made it harder and harder to essentially get to the point where you can, in fact, prove the discrimination that you have to have to get the judicial remedy. So affirmative action from the court-ordered side essentially requires a judgment before the court can essentially do anything. And the extent of what relief the court provides depends on the severity of the wrongs that the uh, defendant has essentially uh, been accused of. Uh, this is a problem which makes uh, court-ordered affirmative action difficult to essentially bring about. So that's why I say uh, the idea of voluntary affirmative action is preferable. Um, but the problem with voluntary affirmative action is that people come in and challenge it. In other words, the employer comes up with an affirmative action plan, not because a court has mandated it, but because the employer, through working with the union, uh, through you know, other political modes, uh, realizes that you know, this is the right thing to do. So the employer goes forward, puts together a plan. The plan could have quotas in it, right? Because the employer, the union, they kind of work it out, essentially. But you have a person who feels that the plan essentially discriminates them on the basis of race, whites. Uh, and the court gets involved in the process all over again. Now, to make a kind of a long story short about this, uh, the Supreme Court has upheld voluntary affirmative action uh, in really just one situation. I mean, two cases, but one situation. Both of them involving uh, essentially blue-collar employment uh, in contexts where the statistical disparities between the people working for the employer and the general workforce where the employer pulls in its workers is radically disparate meaning that you have in one of the cases involving a road dispatcher position, uh, the employer, which was a county agency in California, had zero women essentially doing that, uh, that job. Whereas, in fact, if you looked at the labor pool, there were thousands of women who were capable of, in fact, doing that, that kind of job uh, with some training. So in situations where the cases are fairly easy, the court has, in fact, allowed voluntary affirmative action programs to go forward. But as you get into situations where the statistical disparities are not as great as they are in the context of blue-collar employment, it becomes harder to justify voluntary programs. Now, having said that, let's kind of talk about um, uh, CUNY. Um, you know, I've been looking at some of the CUNY bylaws and regulations, and, uh, you know, a couple of things stand out from uh, that observation. Uh, first of all, CUNY clearly has a non-discrimination policy. In fact, almost all institutions have uh, non-discrimination policies. And if you look at it, uh, what it basically says is that the university adheres to not discriminating against people on the basis of, you know, the normal protected uh, categories. It follows, for the most part, various executive orders, uh, the understandings of Title VII, state laws, as uh, well as uh, local laws. But the interesting piece about it, and some of you, I'm sure, know this already, is that uh, the CUNY def definition of protected class, this is a category that you don't find anywhere else in the federal or even local law. Uh, and that is the category of Italian-Americans. Now, uh, that came about uh, through an, an act of voluntary affirmative action on the part of the CUNY administration uh, back during the 1970s. And the way that this happened is actually astonishing to me looking back at it, because the argument that was made uh, by Italian-American faculty is that the percentage of faculty uh, was disproportionate and out of sync with the per percentages of students, of students. Uh, the, 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 the faculty composition when the plan was put in place was about 5%. 
the student population was about 25%. Uh, and that was enough to essentially uh, get CUNY to recognize Italian-Americans as a um, protected category uh, within the CUNY uh, university system. Now, uh, Chancellor Reynolds, back in the 80s and 90s, was backing away from this, and there was litigation that was filed. And in a decision uh, rendered by a very, very famous uh, civil rights lawyer who became a judge in the Southern District of New York, Constance Baker Motley, uh, the court essentially ruled, well, the, the court approved the settlement that was put in place, uh, essentially uh, requiring CUNY to, in fact, abide by its recognition of Italian-Americans as essentially a protected class. Now, the reason why this is so extraordinary to me looking back at it is because uh, the law today would not allow that. The law today would not allow a university voluntarily to essentially put in place an affirmative action plan by looking at a disparity between student composition at the institution and faculty composition at the institution. Uh, there have been places where uh, that has been tried. It's called the role model theory, the idea that students of of protected classes need faculty to essentially sustain them. In fact, the argument that was made uh, to the administration uh, by the Italian-Americans is that we need to have Italian-American faculty to make sure that the Italian-American students succeed at the institution, right? That argument is essentially had very, very, it's been thrown out in the Supreme Court of the United States. I mean, there's some state courts where it's gotten more strength, but the point is that that was done voluntarily at a time when the law allowed it. It was involuntarily at a time uh, when the law allowed it. Uh, and basically, when you kind of talk about the history of affirmative action at CUNY, the case that always pops up is the case involving uh, Italian-Americans. Now, CUNY does have uh, an affirmative action policy, which is separate from uh, the um, non-discrimination policy that I was talking about. It's also found in a number of different provisions. Um, just to um, uh, read uh, one to you, this is language from uh, a document, and this is essentially what it says, uh, the Board of Trustees of the City University of New York has adopted numerous resolutions supporting affirmative action and has committed the university to a vigorous program of action. The May 28, 1985 statement of the Board's commitment especially directed the Chancellor and the colleges to re-emphasize the taking of the positive steps that will lead to recruiting, hiring, retaining, tenuring, and promoting increased numbers of minorities uh, and women. This is distinct from the anti-discrimination policy uh, that the university has. It is, in fact, designed to go more. Those of you who, um, uh, you know, read the emails that come from the uh, administration, you know, are aware of the survey that was uh, done of uh, faculty that the university essentially uh, undertook. I understand from my research that they haven't essentially wrapped their plan up, but uh, it's still something that uh, I think we're going to have to uh, come to grips with at some uh, particular point in time. Uh, in any event, what makes this issue so complicated, uh, as um, I was saying before, is that to get court-ordered affirmative action, uh, one essentially has to prevail in litigation, which is harder and harder to do because of rules that the courts are essentially putting forward. But voluntary affirmative action, although it's been upheld in the two key cases that I made allusions to earlier, uh, really uh, those rulings are um, in place by virtue of uh, one vote in the Supreme Court of the United States. One vote, essentially. And um, it's, you know, it's all going to turn, probably, on what happens in the, you know, the 2012 uh, 12 election. Uh, I've been focusing uh, on employment discrimination and affirmative action in hiring. Of course, we have the much 
equally large picture involving uh, university admissions, uh, which is also in a very shaky, shaky position. The cases are probably going to go the same way, uh, but they are coming up through the lower courts, and they will get to the Supreme Court at some uh, some point in time. So, which, which, whichever way it happens, uh, the struggle is there because I think that some of this, this, the arguments that were made in the 19th century uh, against the Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, against the various civil rights packages, legislative packages uh, coming out of the Reconstruction Congress. They were made in the 19th century. They're certainly being made uh, today. Uh, so um, that's pretty much what I wanted to say uh, by way of an introduction uh, to the topics. And um, I'm looking forward to the uh, rest of the discussion. Thanks. <laughs>